Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. For the past 25, 30 years, when you're listening to arguments about marriage and raising kids and couples, what have you kind of heard from the media and leftist progressive movement what have you heard about that? You, you've heard, and, and I, I'll kind of answer it. I know it's, it's summarizing opinions that you that have echoed your way, but it is that it doesn't really matter. Being a single mom's great. It's 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 you can it, everything's just as good. Or that it doesn't matter what kind of couple you are. It doesn't matter. You know, hey, on the margins, it's good to, to have two people in the home, but it's not it's not a problem. As the left pushes, and, and I've made the argument, as the left pushed for any two people to get married, you kind of threw out the defining characteristic of marriage, which was more religious. Otherwise, it's it's a contract between two individuals. It's government recognizing marriage is a government marriage, and that's a social contract. And then that the number becomes kind of arbitrary. If any two people could get married, why can't any three? Why is it? Why would polygamy be illegal from a social contract standpoint? If the government can recognize any two people from a social contract, calling it marriage, changing the definition of marriage, why can't any three, four, five, seven, ten people decide, hey, we're married and it's okay? So we've heard this kind of mishmash to, to get these kind of equal rights, but we haven't talked a lot about what it does to kids. And I think that's worthwhile. And I know this is a problem because when The Atlantic, a decidedly left-leaning publication, begins to address this, we know something's going on. It gives us insight into, wait a minute, why would the left be talking about marriage in a way that conservatives would also agree? And, and, and it's, it's fascinating. So Brad Wilcox has the piece over at The Atlantic. It was published the day before Valentine's Day. And they're challenging their own side's elite ideology. The same elitism that Josh Stein was raised in is now being challenged. Is it morally wrong to have a baby outside of marriage is, is how the column starts off. No is the answer I received from about two-thirds of my sociology of family class at the University of Virginia last spring when I put the question to them in an, an anonymous online poll. The class of approximately 200 students was diverse geographically, racially, and ethnically. But on questions like this one, asking whether society should promote or value one type of family structure over another, the students I teach at UVA generally say it shouldn't. This is the author's perspective, so I'm reading it. Yet, when the author asked those same students who are almost all unmarried, do you personally plan to finish your education, work full-time, marry, and then have children, 97% of them said yes. And why, when, I, when the professor asked them, if you come home at Thanksgiving and told your parents that you or your girlfriend were having a baby, would your parents freak out? 99% said yes. In one sense, those answers are not surprising. The great majority of students, about 80%, report hailing from an intact family with married parents. 
his particular class at UVA is not exceptional. 73% of students at elite colleges and universities nationally were born to married parents who have since stayed married versus 51% of high school seniors across the country. At the same time, a majority of the students are liberal or progressive on many social issues. They are at a minimum non-judgmental about lifestyles. But there's a problem. Ah, there's a problem with this disjunction between the student's public family ethic and their own private family orientation. A disjunction that the author sees in elite circles. <gasps> what? Wait, this is one of the elite calling out their own side. Voluminous research shows that being born into a married, stable household confers enormous benefits on kids, whether the parents are rich or poor. The question this person put to the students about their life plan involves a variant of what social scientists call the success sequence. Research clearly shows three things. Getting a high school, at least a high school degree, working full-time in your 20s, and marrying before you have kids dramatically increases your odds of reaching the middle class or higher and minimizes the chances of your children growing up in poverty. This is across races. It's across cultures. It's everything. So forget the victim mentality. Those three things, getting at least a high school degree, working full-time in your 20s, marrying before you have kids, increases your odds of your kids not growing up in poverty. We know it. We don't need to establish a poverty center at UNC to figure this out. We don't need to study wealth in some kind of expansive uh, government way. We don't need to increase minimum wage. We don't. If you just being married, high school degree, and being married before you have kids, huge. You would think with that knowledge, all of the liberal elite lefties and the people on the right would get on board and say yes. Not just yes, but hell yes. Yet many elites today according to this author, who leans that way, professors, journalists, educators, and other cultural shapers publicly discount or deny the importance of marriage, the two-parent family, and the value of doing all you can to stay together for the sake of the kids, even as they privately value every single one of those things. It's the same thing I said about Joe Biden earlier, isn't it? What Democrats are saying publicly and privately are two different things. What they're telling you about marriage and what they're saying privately and what they're doing with their own kids, two different things. On family matters, they talk left, but they walk right, an unusual form of hypocrisy that, however well-intended, contributes to American inequality, increases misery, and borders on the immoral. That's a strong statement coming from the left, isn't it? That They're basically saying that his own progressive movement, by extolling privately the virtues of being married and having kids, but publicly saying you don't need those, is contributing to inequality, it's increasing misery, and it's bordering on the immoral. Rob Henderson witnessed this strange dynamic as an undergraduate in Yale in 2016. Henderson, who recently completed a doctorate in psychology from Cambridge, and whom the author came to know through correspondence on Twitter, said recently that during his second year at Yale, a psychology professor asked the students in the class how many of them had been raised both by both of their parents. Henderson had grown up in a working-class area characterized by lots of family instability, and his childhood had been very unstable. He had cycled through 10 different foster families. He knew his own family background was rare at Yale. Nonetheless, it was a shock when he said 18 out of 20 students, 90% raised their hands. 90%. This got him thinking, why is it that these people are studying at this great university while many of his friends back home were in jail or working in a batting cage and strung out on drugs? He came to believe that family structure was a big part of why some young adults had a shot at success and others did not. But he discovered that talking about this wasn't easy. When you discuss it amongst the elites 
they get silent. They don't like having that discussion. It's uncomfortable to them. That's a critical thing. What the elites say versus what they do. You'll notice on your ballots, if you're going to vote in primaries, there's a dizzying array of candidates, a number of open seats, and there's a number of challengers to people who are incumbents. One of these that's more of a heads-up race is Michelle Morrow, who's running against North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. Well, actually, the, the North Carolina Superintendent, Catherine Truitt. Michelle, welcome to the show. A lot of folks aren't as familiar with this position. There's a school board, a state, I mean, a state school board, state superintendent, a governor, and lieutenant governor, and it's very confusing to folks. So what made you decide to run for superintendent of public instruction? Well, thank you so much for having me on, Chad. Um, I'm running because I think that the public school system right now in North Carolina is failing us as families and as students. I see that it is a huge attack, probably the largest um, issue of protecting our constitutional republic is removing the indoctrination and the lies that we're telling our, our students about world history, about U.S. history, about biology, economics, you name it. It's time for us to get back to the basics and train up our kids to be mature, hardworking, critically thinking, and proud to be Americans. Now, what's your background that would make, I'll give folks a little bit of background. Heretofore, historically, Democrats did very well, um, almost maintaining this monopolistic control over the Department of Public Instruction until Mark Johnson won in 2016. He was there for one term, decided to run for lieutenant governor, and then uh, Catherine Truitt, who had served in the McCrory administration with Western Carolina University, I believe, uh, is now the superintendent, ran the operation very differently. Tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into you know why you're challenging an incumbent. So tell us a little bit about you. Certainly. Thank you. So I'm a Christian conservative. I've been a wife for 26 years. I am a mom of five. My kids have been in public, private, and homeschooled, so I feel like I have a really good grasp of the benefits and potentially the pitfalls of each of those um, types of, of schooling opportunities. And I have um, I've been working for the last five years in really fighting to get educational reform here in North Carolina. So the last two, I've been a part of a group called the Pavement Education Project. You can look that up online. And we have been fighting the pornography and the graphic violence and the indoctrination uh, that's been happening in our schools and trying to get back to um, protecting children's innocence and putting scholastics above a political agenda or a, a social justice agenda. And to that end, you know, there is a Republican in there, Catherine Truett, the Republican. You've decided to challenge her. Why do you believe you should replace Catherine Truett? What, what, are, what are your distinctions, differences, and why do you believe that you're a better fit for that position? Well, I believe that the U.S. Department of Education has completely um, extended overreach into the state of North Carolina. You know, per our federal constitution, the U.S. Department of Education doesn't really even have a right to exist. The states should be the ones that set the curriculum standards uh, for the state. And our constitution in North Carolina clearly gives the legislature that role. However, the legislature, and per our constitution, they set up, as you mentioned before, the State Board of Education. So what happens in North Carolina, the legislature sets the law, and then the State Board of Education is supposed to vote on policies. And then the Department of Public Instruction is the one that sets the standards and gives the resources to the 115 school districts in North Carolina in order to be able to uphold and to implement 
the laws that the legislature has put forward. And what I see is Catherine Truitt has been a complete rubber stamp to everything that the Biden administration has tried to shove down the throats of us as North Carolina citizens. And we need a firewall who is going to push back um, when you don't when you're not the one that's writing the laws. You need to be persuasive enough to tell the lawmakers what North Carolina families want. And you need to fight back when people are not doing the right thing. And um, and for when Truett has not been pushing a CRT and DEI um, and an SEL agenda, she has been silent on the things that matter most to our families in North Carolina. I have not been silent. I have been active, as I said, um, for the last five years in in educating and empowering the public of North Carolina to be able to reach out to their legislators and to their school board members and their superintendents and tell them what we need to prepare our kids for adult life. Now, one of the criticisms that I think is fair is that the state board of education has had a decidedly left tilt with respect to CRT, DEI, some of the policies pushed down, the big government spending, stuff like this, and, and, and lack of accountability. The, the criticism I would have is that Truett has done very little to push back against that. How would you characterize what your relationship with the state school board would be, and what do you think the, the superintendent can do to either change or go along with that? Well, per the job description, the superintendent is actually the chief administrative officer for the State Board of Education. So while she does not have a vote, per se, on the board, she actually sets the agenda. And so when we're looking at voting at policies, essentially what should be happening and what I will do in my administration is I am going to put people underneath me that are the directors of different organizations. What Catherine has done is she got rid of many conservative minds within the DPI, and she filled them with left-leaning people that are pushing the agenda from Joe Biden. And so what you need is you need to put... Yes, sir. I uh, tell you what, we're running short on time. How can people find out more about you? Michelle Morrow running for uh, superintendent. Sure. My website is morrow4nc.com. Morrow is M-O-R-R-O-W-4-N-C.com. Michelle, thank you for being a part of the show today so people can get out there and learn a little bit more about you. Now, what I'm about to tell you, you yeah, you know, it gets to the point that it's, it's hard to believe some of the stuff that, that happens. It's just hard I'm a policy guy. Look, I ran what was known as the Center for Local Innovation. I was the director of that for a number of years uh, through the John Locke Foundation. And my job and what I enjoy, I was I'd been a county commissioner for a couple terms. And I loved innovation because a lot of the problems that cities and counties face, they they solve many of them solve in innovative ways. Some just throw more money at things. But there are a number of solutions out there that cities and counties would run across that would that were cost savings that sometimes didn't cost anything and oftentimes produced a lot of savings for taxpayers and whether it's in the mountains or the coast the problems are similar the solutions are different and and i loved that role i loved finding ways to solve problems in a cost-effective manner i enjoyed doing it as a commission commissioner i enjoyed doing it as an avocation and and have continued that's part of why i love talk radio you get to talk about things but you also get to recognize when bureaucrats do more harm than good. Uh, you find them at the city county level where they instead of the because public service would mean that here are the rules. My job is to help you solve whatever problem you have within the rules. 
my job is not to tell you what you can't do. It's to tell you how you can accomplish what you need to do within the confines of the rules. Now, sometimes the federal government likes to say we know better than the state government. It's kind of this way of pushing down. And we find this in the state of Tennessee. The just This is where you wonder how this is even possible. I'm going to read the, the Justice Department release, and then I'm going to tell you what it means because it's bizarre. So the Justice Department filed a lawsuit today against the state of Tennessee and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the TBI, for violating the Americans with Disability Act. By the way, I think the ADA in many ways should be gotten rid of and gutted. It's one of the most horrific pieces of legislation ever written that does little to help people with American disabilities, but instead creates crushing uh, crushing ways of dealing with businesses that, that just make everything more expensive for everybody and don't help. Anyway, the department previously notified Tennessee and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation that they violated the ADA by enforcing the state's aggravated prostitution statute against people living with HIV. That letter of findings detailed the minimum remedial measures necessary to address the discrimination. The enforcement of state criminal laws, quote, that treat people differently based on HIV status alone and that are not based on actual risk of harm, discriminate against people living with HIV, said Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division. People with living with HIV should not be subjected to a different system of justice. Now, you kind of heard what this is about, but I don't know if you fully got it. The state of Tennessee has made it illegal for prostitutes to knowingly give other people HIV, to give them a known to, in other words, now I, I just got to let this sink in because the gravity of how nonsensical this is, is difficult to fathom. The Justice Department under Joe Biden, the same Justice Department that wanted to go after, remember Mandy Cohen is head of the CDC now, that wants to shut your business down for knowingly violating, I don't know, the six feet or masking or or uh, vaccines that, that, that you might spread a disease that is not nearly very fatal, you could go to jail for that. But if you're a prostitute with HIV and you knowingly spread it that could kill the next person, that's okay. And the DOJ, if you try to say it's not okay, they're going to sue you. They have literally said that if prostitutes willingly give their clients, HIV, they cannot be prosecuted for that because it's a violation because you're discriminating against them because they have HIV. Let us take this a step further. If you had, an, if you had Ebola, which is a hem viral hemorrhagic fever with a kill rate of about 90%, pretty quick though, much slower. HIV is an incredible virus because it took years to be detected and years to kill you, and by the time it killed you, a lot of other people were dead and it had been spread hundreds of times. Ebola spreads pretty quickly, wipes people out in a couple of weeks. But if you had Ebola, and you knowingly, willfully gave it to a lot of other people, the CDC and the Biden administration would crush you, unless there was a law saying that you could be crushed, and then they would defend you, saying that you've got a disability for the remaining few days of your life, and they're going to protect you from prosecution for killing other people with the disease. This makes, this is the kind of wackadoo reality that undermines the entirety of the Biden Justice Department. 
in its prosecution of Trump and others, even the January 6th stuff. It's the way in which they act that defies common sense. All Tennessee is saying is that prostitutes that knowingly, willingly, and even with purpose, intentionally affect other people can be prosecuted for that. Now, if they hit them with a rock or a, shoot them with a gun, I guess you could go after But I, I wonder if they're, if they're HIV positive and they shoot you, are they a protected class? I don't know. I can't make this stuff up. I can just pass it along to you because it's that through the looking glass way that the progressive left looks at the world that only in that world can someone knowingly passing along a disease be protected as a disability. The disease is the disability and you spreading it is legal according to the Biden Justice Department. And again, can't make it up, can't fit that square peg into the round hole. It makes no sense, but that happened. So just passing that along. All right. Do the current world events have you wondering whether we are teetering on the edge of catastrophe? Are you concerned it's going to reach our shores? Okay. So what are you doing about your concerns? Let me help. Carolina Readiness Supply at carolinareadiness.com. Whether you're looking to expand your emergency preparedness supplies or you have no idea where to even begin, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you. Food, water purifiers, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies even. Because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you'll need for any kind of emergency. In Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com, veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? This is the time of show that I typically love to get into scientific inquiry because it's something that I, I think is sorely lacking. There's, there's a great piece, I, I'm not going to get to it, over at Real Clear Science uh, that, well, actually, there's one It's yeah, Real Clear Science that's talking about the five love languages. There's a great deal of, of influence now uh, saying that those aren't five languages, that they're kind of all kind of equal for all of us. It it's just hasn't been looked at too closely. There's one, certainly, that uh, about over-processed foods. I may be able to get to some of that, but I do want to get to one about doctors. Because in this, it's amazing to me that we haven't really talked about medical care much in the presidential race, not the, the governor's race. We're not really hearing a lot about it, even though we know the American, uh, the Affordable Care Act has not made medicine more affordable. Uh, your, the taxpayers are funding a lot of this. The, the, the choices in health insurance are getting worse. Your options to, to get in, I'll give you an example of mine. It's, it's anecdotal, but I think many of you can. Uh, I'm a third generation. I haven't had melanoma, but I, my father had it many times. It killed my grandmother. And I'm actually fourth generation. And then one generation, my Aunt Mary in 1907 appears to have died from it. It's a very aggressive form of cancer. It can kill you inside of six weeks if left unnoticed and untreated. It's very rapid. It's an amazing amazing utilization of your body against itself with your own cells to kill you. But if you wanted to go get, if, if your doctor gave you a referral to go talk to a dermatologist in many places in the state of North Carolina, uh, in no small part due to the stupid, antiquated, protected by both parties certificate of need process, you likely won't get in to see that dermatologist for four to six months, even if they are taking patients, which many of them are not. That's a death sentence for people with melanoma. If they choose not to go see a dermatologist, they'll be dead before they'll get to see that specialist. Uh, this is by Paul Bigren over at Stat News. 
More than 100,000 doctors have left private practice and become employees of hospitals and other corporate entities since 2019. Today, nearly three in four physicians are employees of larger healthcare entities or other corporations. That's exactly what's happening in North Carolina, which is a record high. As an independent physician, I know exactly why so many are doing it. Uh, his four doctor gastroenterology practice has come under severe stress in 2007 due to catastrophic fee schedule cuts from the two largest payers. Luckily, he joined forces with other local independent doctors to form a larger group. He values his independence and his autonomy in caring for his patients. He couldn't imagine practicing medicine any other way, but not all physicians are in the position to do that. That's why they've teamed up with so many to form the American Independent Medical Practice Association that advocates on behalf of independent physicians. Disappearing independent docs ought to alarm patients and policymakers of North Carolina. Research shows that independent medical practices often deliver better outcomes for patients than hospitals. Physician-owned practices also have lower per-patient costs. They have fewer preventable hospital admissions, fewer readmissions than their larger hospital-owned counterparts. Congress should ensure that it doesn't further endanger the prospects for independent medicine. The business in medicine, very different than 40 years ago, when three and four doctors cared for patients in their own practice. The cost of managing a practice, whether primary care or specialty, has surged labor costs, rent, premiums for malpractice insurance have all grown more than expensive. More and more expensive, physicians have had to make significant investments in information tech and electronic health records. Reimbursements for Medicare have not kept pace with operational costs. In fact, Medicare payments to doctors have declined more than 25% in the past two decades after taking inflation into account. That's right. On a real basis, Medicare is paying doctors less than it did 20 years ago. Attention, Roy Cooper and all you Republicans that voted for Medicaid expansion. It's not much better there either. In some medical specialties, the situation's even worse. Payments for critical oncology, cancer, services provided by community practices lags inflation by almost 30%. Medicare reimbursements for other healthcare entities have risen steadily over the same time. So when you look at all this, the landscape is not good. And, and what do you do about that? Doctors caring for patients in their own practices used to be the bedrock of healthcare for good reasons. Now, the model, that model enables patients to receive more personalized care, to build deeper and more trusting relationships. And independent practices allow doctors to practice free of corporate guidelines and pressure to refer patients for procedures they don't need. We deserve stuff like that. I work closely with a company that, that actually imports competition. We treat patients that they can travel and go to different places to get a second opinion and get it done cheaper. Our system, our certificate of need process in North Carolina is wrong. It's morally wrong. It's fiscally irresponsible. It hurts patients. It hurts doctors. And it's protected because the hospital systems in our state go before your state legislators and keep it there. So if you wanted to open a competing dialysis center or provide services in your market, the government gets to determine in North Carolina, protected by Republicans and Democrats, and Speaker Tim Moore is aware of this, Phil Berger is aware of this, and the governor. And they've worked hand in glove to make sure that the certificate of need process stays in place. And it's killing us. It would allow, if we get rid of it, more people to compete. More specialists can come into the market. We need less giant hospital systems because it's not costly for someone to become an independent doctor in the state of North Carolina if we were to get rid of this process. The process that most North Carolinians don't know about is it forces a group to go before the governor due to the laws of the state to get permission for the governor to bless that 
and to say, yes, you have proven that you are needed in this given place in North Carolina, and thus I will sign this and allow you to further your practice. The process can cost you up to a million dollars just to get permission. That's not a million dollars that helps a single patient. That's not a million dollars that helps with research. That's not a million dollars that heals anyone. It's a million dollars to kiss the ring. And it's why it's driving many physicians to join practices that are owned by hospitals. And that's not giving us better outcomes. It's making it worse. And in North Carolina, where we have so many things going for us, this, by the way, South Carolina got rid of its certificate of need process. Most states have done so. North Carolina refuses to do so. And you have to wonder why. Why do both parties protect this kind of wreck? And they're afraid. There's a lot of money. These hospital systems have billions in offshore accounts. They've made money hand over fist. You're not better served. This entire Medicaid expansion is going to benefit hospitals, especially the larger ones. It's going to put a patch on the hospitals in the rural areas that are dying slowly. They're going to continue to erode and lose. But there's so much more we can do. By the way, a big thank you to the audience, to the staff at WBT. It's been an honor and a privilege to be here. Our good friend Pete Cowder will return back here noon to 3. Do stay tuned. Mr. Winnable will be joining you shortly. Have a great day, folks. 